Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on Prisons. During the Middle Ages, theologians pondered the precise number of days a soul must burn in purgatory to atone for its sins. Today, Canada has a 300-page criminal code which assigns a precise number of days a person must spend in prison to atone for his offence. The cultural roots of our attitudes to crime and punishment grow deep. Tonight, in the fifth programme of David Cayley's ten-part series on prison and its alternatives, we'll try to unearth some of these roots. Ivan Illich will consider imprisonment as a religious ceremony. Legal scholar John Haley will take us to Japan. There, a very different culture has produced a criminal justice system directed primarily towards correction rather than punishment. And Dutch criminologist Luke Hulsman will argue that criminal justice is stuck in the obsolete categories of moral theology. Prison and its Alternatives, Part 5, by David Cayley. Luke Holtzman devoted much of his professional career to Holland's criminal justice system. As a senior official of the Dutch Ministry of Justice, he trained police and judges, drafted legislation, directed public prosecutors, and oversaw prisons. Today, he's Professor Emeritus of Law at Erasmus University in Rotterdam, and he says that he will no longer use the word crime. He thinks that as soon as an event is classified by police as a crime, it ceases to belong to the individuals involved. The procedural requirements of the law take over. The concrete interests of the people affected tend to fade from the picture. In most social spheres, he says, what something means is ultimately decided by the people it touches. Criminal law transcends this realm of negotiated meanings. It declares, magisterially, that what something means is immaterial. What happened is what counts. Luke Holtzman traces this habit of thought all the way back to the Middle Ages, where he finds the archetype of present-day criminal law in moral theology. Crime is sin. And a sin which is then formulated and uh, constructed in the same way the moral theology people of the scholastic constructed sin. Uh, you, you remember naturally the hell of Dante with all the sinners in it, hierarchically organized. Uh, and you had also the heaven in that time with all the different sort of angels also hierarchically organized. Huh? And then that was beautiful, naturally, forms of art, and you could put all your enemies on different points in the hell, mainly kings and cardinals and popes. Huh? But then you got the beginning of our modern lawyers, dreary people who try to have exact precision in words in which they make those categories then. Because those theologians had invented purgatory. They found the difference between heaven and hell to crude, and they invented purgatory where you could go then to atone, is that mm -hmm. what they atone your sins uh, by burning, and they had to have a precise measure. You had, for example, thousand days to burn in purgatory, but by certain prayers you could 
liberate souls, uh, if you did them in the right way. And then it was also because for such a prayer, if it was good, then they got 300 days less. So all that was very measured. And to measure it, yeah, then actually have clear names for those sins. Uh, so every sin had his own box, his name. And they described also very precisely for every box what were the physical elements of that sin and what were the, the psychological, uh, the intention, the moral elements of that sin. And it was a coherent system because you had a sort of computer god who knew everything and who could see inside you your intention. Uh, there was open book tour for him. And he memorized all that uh, during the life. And then when you died, yeah, it was exactly clear. He has to go perhaps to hell immediately, but perhaps he has still a chance to go to heaven. But then he has to burn 3,000 days in purgatory. That was the system. And that is exactly the system of criminal justice. Crime is a way to reconstruct events without asking people what they experienced. You do not ask the victims are not involved, and you do not ask the victims what they experienced and what they want. The perpetrators are not involved, and you ask them not what they did. You have your own idea about what is important, your box, this is theft. So you ask the person, did you do this, did you do that, did you do that? But you want to see if he fits into a box. The police is doing that. The police is trained in the boxes. And after that, the prosecutor is trained in the boxes. And the judge is trained in the boxes. And they look if something which happened fits in such a box. And they do that like the Almighty God, because for the Almighty God, he counted back. Those sins remained, unless they were explicitly forgiven. It was a reckoning extunct from how it counted on the moment that it happened. And that's what criminal justice is also extunct doing. from then? From then, or from that, that moment in the past. <laughs> Normally people, in normal justice, in civil justice, you decide always on now. Naturally, events in the past can have consequence for now, but someone asks something now, and on that question you decide. So you decide ex nunc. And if in between the past and now other things have happened, then, then they count. But not so in criminal law. If you have stolen something, and since you have given back ten times that, that does not count. <laughs> what it really mean, means, that it has nothing to do with how life is now going on between us. The definitions are so that the meanings are excluded and that there is no room for that certain things have different meanings for people. And you understand because that God could still read your mind or your heart. But a judge can naturally not. The old churches could still, because they had something of the God power, 
but in a secular state, <laughs> they do not have that anymore. So they can't know. <laughs> and so the whole thing is, uh, for me, that whole reconstruction of events in those terms is invalid. For me, it is a bad fantasy. The images which are given from social life in criminal justice. A bad fantasy. What they are doing is playing the old scholastic game of the last judgment and the personal judgment and creating social order by punishment and reward. That is what, what how it was presented in that theology. And now we have lost the reward <laughs> and only kept <laughs> the punishment. Criminal justice, Luke Holtzman says, is a bad fantasy which misrepresents social life. What others might call crimes, he will speak of only as criminalizable events. The word crime for him has a moral flavor, and he wants to establish a distinction between law and morality. His more tentative term points to the fact that crime is primarily a legal artifact. Most criminalizable events are never prosecuted as crimes because they are never made known as such, and those that are are not necessarily all immoral acts. Things we ought not to do might be perfectly legal, he says, while things we ought to do might not. All sort of criminalizable behavior is for me obligatory. If a friend who is ill and who wants to die asks me to help him dying, then I think that I have to do that. I would think that I acted wrong if I did not do that. And if a person in a criminal justice system asks me to render testimony of someone who had told me something in confidence, I would think that was wrong to tell it. You cannot take the law as a standard for what is good and what is bad. That doesn't mean that I think that law cannot have a role, eh? but I mean you should never, because something is criminalizable, falls technically under a criminal law, say that it is wrong. And also, even those things, which I would think also that problematic situations and also eventually bad behavior, that does not mean at all that it should be dealt with inside a criminal justice system. So it can be dealt with in hundreds of other systems of social control. Luke Holzmann would like to see many things that are currently criminalized dealt with through these other systems of social control. But he recognizes that recourse to law will sometimes be necessary and that law has a positive part to play in social life. This part, he thinks, should be played as much as possible by the civil law rather than the criminal law. At the conference in Oslo, Norway, on prison growth, where we met, he called his paper On Civil Solutions. In this paper, he explored the extent to which criminal procedures could be replaced by civil action. As an example, he gave a case he had followed in the Netherlands of a group of women who were being bothered by former partners. They had tried to solve the problem through the police and been dissatisfied with the results. They were then persuaded by feminist lawyers 
to institute civil proceedings against the men who were harassing them. This put them in a much better position, Lukulsmann says, for now they were clients and not just victims. In civil law, there is only a case if you have a party who wants to mobilize civil law. In the same sense that you have only a contact with a doctor when you call a doctor. And when you not call him or say, now is he enough, and you send him home, then he goes home. And so it's also with civil law. You want something of civil law. In this case, the women wanted that the judge would say, you men have to stop molesting this woman. You have to stay out of her neighborhood, for example. And in a civil case, a judge in Holland can say that. And so then the, the woman feels that she has remains the person who steers what is her problem. Luke Holzmann and his colleagues followed up these cases and found that remaining in charge of the proceeding tended to increase the personal authority of the women and that this was often as important in getting their harassers to desist as the legal injunctions they obtained. The example can't be simply transplanted to Canada because of differences in our law, but it does certainly present a striking contrast with the practice in some North American jurisdictions of forcing women to testify in domestic assault cases even if they don't want to. In such cases, the state acts as if it knows better than the people involved what happened and what ought to be done about it. For Luke Holzmann, this is the central difference between civil and criminal law. A civil judge acts within the party's definition of the situation. Criminal judges are put in the untenable position of having to know more than they actually can. They have to say that a person they do not know at all and see perhaps only five minutes or ten minutes under very exceptional circumstances if he did something intentional or not and what was his meaning. And naturally they cannot know that. So they are put in the position of that almighty God who can read heart and brains and mind of another person. So they are in a completely artificial position. And in a civil case, they understand that it's very difficult to reconstruct an event and that they can do it less good than the direct involved people. So what you see that is in Holland more and more, civil judges try to bring the parties to agree on a common definition of what happened. And on all those things the parties agree on, judges cannot disagree. They have to start on the reality of the parties. Does they understand that they have to go in the skin of the other parties? They have not to make their own feelings and their own values king. They have to help other parties in their different life. The primary difference between civil law and criminal law for Luke Holzmann is that civil law has clients, whereas criminal justice has none. In criminal justice, it is only the state that must be satisfied. Those involved in the case need not be consulted. So why, Luke Holzmann wonders finally, does a system like that continue to grow? Everybody nowadays is talking in that Western world that you should not have public organizations who are not steered by clients. But on a moment that everywhere people try to make government, public services responsible towards clients, they 
make grow a system which has no responsibility whatsoever, which is a completely internal system, that criminal justice system, and which is creating enormous lots of negativity and pain. Luke Holzman sees the Western criminal justice system as a displaced form of moral theology. Through this displacement, he thinks, we have come to identify law and morality so that whatever is immoral ought also to be illegal, and whatever is illegal is implicitly immoral. Crime is a transgression of the moral order rather than a breach in the community, and law exemplifies and embodies this order rather than just serving the citizens as a tool with which to settle their differences. Prison time provides a scale by which the degree of transgression can be precisely measured. Luke Holzman sees this way of thinking as a persistent and ingrained cultural habit. The example of Japan gives credence to his view. There, a culture which has kept law and morality separate has produced a system of criminal justice much more oriented to settling conflicts than to satisfying the law. John Haley is a law professor at the University of Seattle, where he directs the Asian Law Program. He's a longtime student of the way law is enforced in contemporary Japan, and he's written a book on the subject called Authority Without Power, Law and the Japanese Paradox. He sees the Japanese way of doing justice as primarily oriented to addressing grievances and restoring social harmony, rather than making an example of offenders. That each step in the criminal justice system, once uh, a suspect has been identified, the expectation is if they are actually the offender, that they will at an early point confess, uh, show remorse, make some contact with anyone who has been victimized by their offense, negotiate a settlement, a reparation with the victim, that is, to the victim's satisfaction, the victim then will respond with uh, actually, in many cases, a formal letter to the judge or the prosecutor or the police that the victim has been satisfied and essentially pardons the offender. At that point, the system works quite leniently. In a very large number of cases dealing with minor offenses at least, where the police have discretion, they simply don't report the uh, crime or the offender to the prosecutor. Even where they report it to the prosecutor, prosecutors in Japan have very broad discretion to what they refer to as suspending prosecution. They exercise the suspension power in an overall average of about 33, 36 percent of all cases and at that point there is no further proceeding. Even where the prosecutor decides not to suspend prosecution and the case goes to court, the judge will expect the party to have confessed, to have contacted the victim, shown remorse, and of course in these cases there really is no defense because the offender has admitted that they're guilty. And in the same manner, of course, there'll be a conviction, but the judge will uh, suspend the execution of the sentence, uh, put the person on a kind of probation for a period of time, 
and the, uh, the case is over. The result of this process is that very few offenders in Japan, uh, even though convicted, ever go inside a jail. Japan's criminal justice system dates from the period at the end of the 19th century when Japan adopted a modern Western constitution. Its legal institutions are based on predominantly German models. But within this Western shell, a quite un-Western way of doing things has evolved. In Western societies, going all the way back to the idea that crime was a violation of the king's peace, criminal justice has increasingly been defined as a matter between the state and the offender, the king or the queen versus so-and-so, as we still call our law cases. In Japan, much more emphasis has been put on satisfaction of the victims. The victims participate in the process, and the reparation is what the actual victims believe is the appropriate things that they want the offender to do. It will always include an apology. It will always include the offender's admission that they've done something wrong and their expression of remorse for having done that. And then it will ordinarily include a reparation in the sense of it can be a monetary payment, it may be a monetary payment coupled with some expectation that the person will do some service for the community, but there will be some conduct on the part of the offender in which the offender uh, has taken responsibility for what they've done. Reparation, of course, if there's property, if it's a theft, for example, the property will always be returned uh, or its value provided to the victim. In the Japanese criminal justice system, John Haley says, the emphasis is on restitution and the restoration of social peace rather than on punishment as such. Western societies have tended to ostracize and stigmatize offenders. The Japanese approach is to allow them to make amends and be reaccepted. The critical element is a recognition on the part of the law enforcement authorities that the criminal justice system has an overriding purpose, and that is to correct the behavior of offenders. Once you have identified someone who has offended, the system operates to ensure that they will not commit the offense again. And they understand that the best way to ensure that someone doesn't commit a wrong is to have them acknowledge their accountability for the wrongs they've committed. If the person confesses, uh, shows remorse, shows accountability by providing reparations to a victim according to the victim's terms, and the victim in response has pardoned the offender, that particular offender is, in the eyes of law enforcement officials in Japan, and I think quite correctly, far less likely to reoffend. And then, at that point, they expect the family, the friends, the community in which the victim lives to come forward and say, we will take responsibility for this member of our community and ensure that they don't reoffend. So there is a first a concern about the attitude of the offender, and secondly, a concern about the community response to that offender. When both are present, 
the system says this person is not only uh, correctable, he is all, or she is in the process of being corrected, and we don't have to intervene any further. We can let the community take control. Now, that attitude is critically important because if they didn't have that attitude, then the offender would be taken out of the community, and there is no expectation in Japan, again, I believe quite correctly, that dealing with offenders through incarceration or other uh, coercive means where the offender is in denial, has not been willing to accept responsibility, is going to have any beneficial effect in terms of correcting their behavior. So as soon as someone is released back into the society, the expectation is, well, they're going to reoffend. Indeed, uh, if they've been in prison for any length of time, they're going to have learned a lot more about how to reoffend, and so they'll become better criminals than they were before we brought them in. So Japanese do not want to put anyone who is correctable into a situation in which they are, are not going to be subject to the, these types of community controls. The second element, of course, is the nature of the community that Japanese understand that the most effective way to prevent crime is through community control. And so there are enormous attempts are made to ensure community involvement with the criminal justice system, to ensure that the community will reintegrate an offender who is correctable, uh, who has shown the prerequisite expressions of remorse and uh, has obtained the victim's pardon. This way of doing things has produced a remarkable reduction in crime. Some Western countries have managed for periods to reduce imprisonment, but all have experienced a generally upward trend when it comes to reported crime. In Canada, for example, there's been a tripling in the number of recorded crimes per thousand of population since 1964. Japan alone of industrialized countries has had a consistent and sustained fall in its rate of reported crime. The reason for this success, in Professor Haley's view, lies in the authority of community standards in Japan and in the fact that the state has chosen to reinforce the power of these standards rather than replacing them with legal rules. Until its deliberate modernization at the end of the 19th century, Japanese society was largely composed of autonomous villages. They were incorporated in larger political and military orders, but they remained, for the most part, self-governing. The mobilization of the whole community, which rice cultivation demanded, strengthened their solidarity. Institutions of governance remained weak and limited in comparison with their Western counterparts until the later 19th century. This produced the conditions for the emergence of what John Haley calls the Japanese paradox, a weak state producing a strong social order by reinforcing the authority of the community. Community control was also fostered, he thinks, by the Japanese philosophy of law. In Japan, legal rules never acquired the moral force they did in the West. They were understood as political rather than ethical commands. Laws might enforce moral norms, but they were not understood as expressions of a universal moral order, as in the Western tradition. Japan is one of the few countries in the world which historically has not developed or been as deeply influenced by a, a belief system that claims universality. Very few Japanese that I'm familiar with historically or in terms of just individual acquaintances accept a view of 
an overriding set of principles or standards that have universal application over time. The Japanese are far more contextual. They accept that there are standards that apply in certain situations but not in others. That the way we should behave is determined by the communities in which we operate rather than as a result of the existence or belief in the existence of an overriding universally applicable standard of behavior which uh, if we don't follow in our community it means our community is wrong and as a result it makes it much easier for Japanese to separate law from morality legal rules are instruments of state control these are rules made by legislatures or judges or administrative officials uh, imposed to maintain order for the society it's not moral or immoral to obey or disobey legal rules. The legal rules may reflect the values and the, and the norms of the community, or they may not. There's a separation of law and morality. That also is reinforced by Chinese legal tradition, which I think saw law as separate from morality. Legal rules may incorporate or represent moral rules, but, but legal rules weren't in themselves moral rules. How, by way of contrast, has the Western tradition seen this? We have never separated until the 19th century, there was no separation of law and morality. Whether you're discussing Greek law or Roman law or certainly medieval law, the notion, there was a notion of justice. Uh, the notion of justice means, you know, includes the notion that there are moral norms which are coexistent with legal norms. Uh, you, you have a complete merger of what is moral and what is legal. By medieval times, you began to define law. We define law in the sense of there were a hierarchy of law. There's divine law, there's human law, and if human law did not accord with divine law, then human law was wrong. It was unjust. It should not be considered law. You didn't have to follow it. We get move into the 19th century. We eliminate notions of divine law, but we retain notions of natural justice or natural law uh, or some sense that, the, that law must to be valid, must be moral. If it's legal uh, to engage in this conduct, it must be moral to engage in this conduct. If I have a right to do X, it must be moral for me to do X. If it's immoral for me to do X, there should be a law. There should be a law against allowing people to do something that is immoral. And we have this tension built in our system, which, which I don't think uh, anyone in the East Asian tradition, whether it's Japan, China, Vietnam, uh, Korea, would, would accept. These deep underlying differences in worldview raise the question of whether the Japanese way of handling criminal justice, however admirable and interesting it may be, is actually relevant in Western countries. John Haley argues that it is, and points to the fact that the Japanese system itself is a cultural hybrid. The Japanese experience may have brought certain principles more to the fore, he says, but these principles are perfectly well known in the West as well. Japan in this area is relevant only as an example of a system, a national system, that applies some very basic principles in their criminal justice system that are not Japanese. What the Japanese doing has nothing to do with being Japanese. The way it works, the fact that it's, it is taken for granted that it's so easy to do in Japan has cultural props. But the principles that, that are, are applicable here are, are not unique to Japan at all. Uh, we do exactly the same thing 
in our families. We do it in our own communities. People do things that are bad, that are wrong. We expect that they will accept their responsibility for doing something. They'll acknowledge that they've done something wrong. And then we expect them to begin to correct them. And once they've begun to correct them, if they belong to our communities, whether it's a family or whether it's the firm, uh, the workplace, any any situation in which we have ongoing relationships with, with a person who is a wrongdoer, as they are corrected, we welcome them back. We say, hey, I, you, you were drinking last year and you stopped drinking. Uh, you were on drugs. You stopped using drugs. You had difficulty controlling your temper. You went out and, and got some treatment, or I helped you get some treatment, and, and now you're, you're on road to recovery. It doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes, that you don't ever commit a, the wrong again, but uh, you're, you're making efforts, and I, we're not going to throw you out of the house. We're not going to send you out in the streets. We're not going to fire you from your job uh, because you, we have this ongoing, continuing relationship with you. And in the process, the person becomes is corrected. Uh, we do it with our children. We do it with our friends. We do it in our churches. We do it within any of the cohesive communities that we have in which we, we understand that we have relationships. Almost all of our crime problems are problems that occur within the society in where communities have broken down, where these social structures, whether it's family, whether it's a church community, whether it's a workplace community, whether it's a territorial, it's the town, the neighborhood, have all broken down and we are acting as a autonomous individuals without the support systems that really make us social beings as opposed to uh, individuals. Luke Holtzman and John Haley both point to the deep cultural roots from which our criminal justice system has grown. Tonight's program concludes with another analysis along these lines, but this time from a self-professed outsider to the field of criminal justice, Ivan Illich. In April of 1995, Illich was invited to Oslo by Norwegian criminologist Nils Christie to take part in a meeting on the growth of prisons. It was a subject Illich had not previously considered, but out of old friendship for Christie and out of respect for Christie's profound concern about the subject, he agreed to come. The gathering was small, some 40-odd people, and consisted mainly of criminologists and directors of national or state prison administrations. For three days, Illich listened to their discussions, and then, on its final morning, he addressed the meeting. As an outsider, he began, he had experienced many uneasy emotions during their deliberations. He stood before them now, he continued, in shame and deep embarrassment. It was beyond his psychic amplitude, he said, to connect this cordial and intelligent company with their professional function as jailers. How should he understand caring people whose task is to inflict pain? Some months after this meeting, which was also the starting point for this series of programs, I met with Illich at the Pennsylvania State University, where he lectures during the fall. We sat outside on a beautiful, warm autumn day and thought back over the emotions those days in Oslo had inspired. He recalled the disorientation he had felt during a conversation with the director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons in the United States, Kathleen Hawk. This agreeable middle-middle class 
woman in a middle middle class dress with two teenagers whom she wanted advice for how they should learn Spanish told me how difficult it was to do her job and I asked her why she stayed in if this was a matter of money or political career and she said well somebody who might who would succeed me might do my job with less care and suddenly I asked myself what can be a society in which the service of extinction that is of capital punishment is performed with care the statement makes some sense but it is intolerable somehow I can't I can't swallow it this feeling of not being able to swallow what was going on at this gathering came first of all from the idea of pain inflicted with care but it was enhanced Illich told me by the degree of disillusionment he encountered amongst these prison administrators during the 1960s and 1970s when he published critiques of several major modern institutions showing how they frustrated their own purposes he had grown used to the lack of faith the managers of these institutions often displayed there were school officials who agreed when he described schooling as a system for producing dropouts and doctors who agreed when he described the medical establishment as the major threat to health but these people he felt always retained some underlying belief in the usefulness of their institutions amongst the enlightened prison officials he met in Oslo he felt for the first time that he was meeting professionals who made no effective defense of their institution whatsoever we were people who knew that there was no relationship now or ever during the century between growing imprisonment and rising or falling crime rates that this was certainly not a correctional setup because it was for high school for crime that there's no way of proving that imprisonment provides correction or education in the direction in which the lawgiver would want it to function that if it is an agency which takes vengeance on horrible people that those who called for vengeance were dissatisfied with the vengeance wreaked by prison on prisoners i had to think of that horrible experience of a prison director explaining to me when i looked down into the pit where chicago prisoners by the hundreds overwhelmingly black set in front of television sets said the only known treatment for these people is being administered here the age i sat in front of people who knew that what they were doing was useless in illich's eyes the uselessness of the prison as a correctional institution compounds the strangeness of its being administered with such care it's not that he would like prison administrations to be more cruel his point is that the more careful and considerate prison administrations become the more the reality of imprisonment is muffled and hidden i was deeply impressed by the care with which prisoners rights are safeguarded that even the contact with their jailers which in normal prisons give people a chance to feel human rage at somebody who busts into your cell when you don't want to be seen was 
eliminated. I saw most of these prison privilege guarantees as ways of dehumanizing, institutionalizing, sterilizing whatever horrible relationship there is between a victim and his torturer. That goes back to my assumption that the sterile, padded isolation which is being inflicted on people with great care that they've been, as you say, neither branded nor hit, nor even offended, as the creation of something new, a new dimension of lostness, of horrible aloneness, of sensual deprivation, of flattening out of human contact, which concentration camps of a gulag in Russia did not achieve. It is the creation of an experience which is characteristic for our time, which should, in a colossal way, face society with by concentrating it in these prison buildings. Illich uses the term colossal here in a precise sense. Colossus was the name ancient Greece gave to stone effigies that made the dead present among the living. The suggestion of gigantic size, which later became attached to the term, was not part of its original meaning. A colossus was not an image, but a double. It was a sign of absence that established a link between the living and the underworld. Prisons, Illich supposes, face society in the same way. They double social existence, facing us with a form of life that is somehow the same and yet utterly different than the one we live. Imprisonment concentrates the modern experience of placelessness or displacement, but at the same time it somehow relieves people of this experience, making them feel that it is only the prisoners, the criminals, who suffer this disorientation. This double action, in Illich's view, is characteristic of religious rituals, and this is what he thinks imprisonment finally is. The idea began to dawn on him, he says, as he asked himself who these people he sat among in Oslo actually were. I didn't know with what kind of people I should compare them, and suddenly I said to myself, these are cardinals, these are pontiffs, these are people who preside and organize an extraordinary ceremony in society. A ceremony without which society probably could not exist. What does this say? A ceremony, a ritual, what, what is its purpose? Its purpose is not to do something, but to say something. Max Gluckmann has carefully analyzed this. He says, a ritual is a proceeding which hides from all those who participate in it as believers or as priests. The contradiction between what the ritual is meant to do and what it in fact does. And therefore it is always effective. A rain dance is always effective. If it doesn't rain, there must be something wrong with the rain dance. I therefore examine 
and I would like to do much more on this. The Gulag Western style. The Gulag in the age of Windows 95. As a huge ritual. Organized in such a way that everybody says, thank God I am not there. Which must become increasingly visible. So it affects people, telling them there are some people who are deprived of their freedom. There are some people who have to live in a world without place, who are in principle deprived of a standpoint out nowhere, who have no requirements for charity because what they really need is provided for them. And organizations which monitor prisoners' rights make sure that they get their three or their six meters of living space per capita. People who are almost totally disembodied. Look at them. They are out there in the prison. That's what happens to them because they didn't know how to live in our society. And thereby make people forget that this is the colossus which mirrors what our society is. And therefore speaking about prison as a huge ritual which creates a scapegoat which we can drive out into the desert believing that by loading onto that scapegoat all what we experience we'll get rid of it. That prisons are a place in which we can face horror too terrible to recognize that we are ourselves immersed in it. That the existence of prisons makes it possible to transform the entire society in a disembodied, disembodying, meaningless, managed, frontierless, thresholdless place of people with reasonably limited needs, which will be in some way satisfied for them, that the, the idea of prison as the colossus, as the double of society, might warrant to be taken seriously. That I'm, I'm very sure of it within the next five years, some good anthropologist will present prison as the great religious ceremonial by which our society I'm not saying becomes livable, but doesn't collapse. The foundation on which the ritual of imprisonment is erected, in Illich's view, is crime. Crime, as Luke Holzman remarked earlier, is a secularization of the idea of sin. So long as Christian faith remained vital, the two ideas overlapped. But with the waning of Christianity, Illich thinks, crime has taken on a different and more sinister meaning. Where people lack the idea of God or of any ultimate unconditioned good, crime tends to become a substitute source of transcendence, the only element in our world that still reaches beyond the boundaries of our understanding. This idea began to take shape for him, he says, in a discussion he recently had about popular movies. I recently talked to somebody who somehow professionally watches movies. 
then this guy starting out from what did you say that film was called natural born killers mentioned in my presence with somebody else six or seven other movies which for him a theologian raised the same question is there a movement afoot very powerful in the movies which he mentioned but also in some philosophers to make people today aware of evil as an entity. And this guy, this theologian, said to me, you know, in a world in which the soul is out or belongs into the dietary and green movement, and something which can be massaged by Eastern cults adapted to the demands of California, And God is out, except as a useful hypothesis, which I, I and this theologian consider the worst possible blasphemy. In such a world in which there is neither soul nor personal, in any way personal survival, nor God transcending the reality of the conference room of this lovely woods here, The only thing which can be talked about as transcendent is that to which a natural-born killer worships, namely evil. So I began to reflect on the tremendous danger of the secularization of evil as a powerful attraction of attention to something which is claimed to be transcendent, which claims transcendence as the explanation for whatever might lie beyond the threshold of our reasoning powers or uh, of the amplitude of our heart's willingness to grasp. A return of evil, not as grounded in the opposition to good and the absolute good, the ultimate good, but evil as an explanatory device for depths of the human soul, which we can't fathom. Illich's thought here is complicated by the way the word evil is being used. When he speaks of a return of evil, or a new awareness of evil as an entity, he's speaking of something new and unprecedented, something quite unlike what was once meant by evil. In Christian tradition, evil has been defined as the absence of good, as cold as the absence of heat. Cold is a real experience, we can freeze to death, but in itself it is only an absence, not a positive quality. Evil too can be deadly, but in relation to the ultimate good, it is secondary. Its only meaning comes from what is missing in it, from what ought to have been present. It has no inherent meaning. This changes, Illich thinks, when the idea of an ultimate good disappears. For most modern persons, there is no good which we have not made and which we cannot modify at will, no good which transcends and defines us. Without good, there can be no evil in the older sense either. What faces us is something new, something which confuses us by claiming the old name. In Oslo, Illich called it crime without evil, It could also be called evil without good, depending on which sense of the term is used. 
This new entity fills the vacant cultural space which older ideas of good and evil have left behind them. It allows us to name what horrifies and fascinates us, what we can't fathom, Illich says, but it lacks evil's inherent reference to good. Evil in the old sense, however dreadful, is finally small and secondary. Crime without evil becomes colossal. It attracts undue attention, and it becomes the foundation for a ritual which at the same moment hides and reveals what our society is. I spoke about the rising prison system as a ritual, a ritual in which everybody, at least through his taxes, participates as a ritual which is fascinating, so fascinating that it makes us forget that it is the mirror, the colossus, the double of what we live. Crime, without reference to evil, has rendered possible this ritual, which for the moment we are pretty much alone in understanding as the religious expression and manifestation of what our world is like. On Ideas, you've listened to the fifth program in our series, Prison and Its Alternatives, by David Cayley. Production assistant, Gail Brownell. Technical operations by Lorne Tolk. Producer, Alison Moss. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $7 plus GST, or you can buy the entire 10-part series for only $25 plus GST. Send us a cheque or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. And we also have a free reading list for the series, if you'd like one. It's available at the same address. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.